If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 22, Psalm 22 tonight. Given that today much of Christendom is giving particular thought to the death and especially the resurrection of Christ, and given that our Psalm of the Month is from Psalm 22, I thought we would take a brief pause from our ongoing study through Exodus and study through this marvelous 22nd Psalm. We think about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus every week. Uh, That is, of course, why we gather on Sunday, the Lord's Day, because on the first day of the week, Christ sprang forth victoriously from the grave, and he brought life and immortality to light in the gospel. So any week is a good week to study Psalm 22, so why not this week? This psalm was written some 3,000 or so years before the life of Christ, and yet Jesus himself quotes a portion of these words as he's suffering and dying on the cross. He effectively takes this prayer of King David and he adopts it for himself. You heard Jesus cry out those words as we were reading from Matthew's narrative, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later on, the New Testament scriptures show us how this prayer of David was ultimately fulfilled by the experience of our Lord Jesus. And so it is, quite appropriately, appropriately, the psalm of Calvary. It is the psalm of Golgotha. So let's read this text, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help and blessing as we study it together. Let's look now to God's holy word. We'll read the whole of the psalm. Psalm 22. Listen as I read aloud from God's holy word. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, for my, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord... Do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. 
You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we want to see more of Christ today. He lives and he reigns, having bled and died and risen again for sinners like us. So would you send us the Holy Spirit that as your word is read and preached, we might hear his voice so that like the disciples, like Thomas of old, we might fall down and confess my Lord and my God. So we cry to you. And we ask that you would come and wield your word with power in our hearts and in our midst, in the midst of this congregation, for the glory of the name of the risen Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. As I said, written by King David originally, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the contents of this psalm, Psalm 22, actually far surpass any experience in David's life. This is a psalm that gives us a remarkable prophetic glimpse into the sufferings of the Lord Jesus and then the glories which will then follow. And it's written firsthand from David's perspective 3,000 years prior, but as I say, under the inspiration and under the superintendence of God the Holy Spirit, we see that ultimately these words come not merely from David's own perspective, but from Christ's own perspective. It is extraordinary that here we see in Psalm 22 the cross. We see the excruciating experience of Calvary, of Golgotha in detail. From the vantage point, not of the apostles or of the crowds or even of the women there who wished to minister to him, but we see the cross from the vantage point of the one who hung there and the same one who later stepped out from the grave in resurrection victory. If you look at Psalm 22, you'll see that it has two major divisions. It it brings together what we sometimes popularly call Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. It brings them both together in one passage. And that's reflected in our outline if you still have that bulletin insert. The first thing that we see here, the first major division of the text, is what I'm calling the depths of woe. The depths of woe are here, and that's our first point. We see it in verses 1 through 21, really the first half of verse 21, because right there in the middle of verse 21 is 
the hinge point. And that is the, the, the turning point of the whole psalm. So the first thing we see are the depths of woe, but then secondly, the heights of glory are also here. That's our second point from verse 21b there through the end of the psalm in verse 31. The depths of woe and the heights of glory. You see, it brings us, Psalm 22 does, it brings us to the foot of the cross and it shows us vividly the horror of our Savior's dying love for us, but it doesn't just remain there in the dust of Calvary. It then takes us, doesn't it, to very early on the first day of the week, it takes us to the empty tomb and we are freshly confronted by Christ's resurrection glory as it's foretold in type and in shadow, in magnificent Holy Spirit-inspired poetry as it's set forth here for us in the Psalter. So let's think about these things for a few moments together, shall we? Let's think first of all about verses 1 to 21. Here are the depths of woe, the depths of the suffering of Christ. And I want us to see the structure of this part of the psalm. There are three sections of verses that deal with the nature of Christ's suffering. Each of those sections uh, dealing with the nature of his sufferings are then followed by another section of text that show us the unwavering faith of Christ in the midst of his sufferings. There's this alternating that goes back and forth between the crying out in despair to a reminder of his confidence and, and faith in God, his Lord. There's a section of agony followed by a section of unwavering faith. You see that back and forth flow, I think, as you read through it. Each of those sections that deal with Christ's confidence begin with a line, what I like to call the defiant conjunctions of faith. Yet you are holy, we read in verse 3. Yet you are holy. Or yet you, verse 9, O Lord. Or down in verse 19, but you, O Lord. Verses where our Savior endures agony, bearing down upon him. But then that agony rolls back. The, the curtain is drawn back, so to speak, and we see his trust, and we see his casting himself upon the goodness of God, even in the midst of his agony. So let's look at that first distress and response section of suffering and then confidence in these first opening five verses. You know, it's very interesting in the, the, the structure of the psalm and the flow of this particular psalm. Oftentimes in the psalms, the author will slowly and gradually build up to a climax of misery. Particularly, we see that in the Psalms of Lament. Right? He'll open with a general assessment of his situation. Maybe he'll open with an ascription of praise to God. And then he'll start laying out his circumstances. And, and then somewhere in the middle of the Psalm, he'll reach this mountaintop expression of woe. And then the tone of the text will shift to a kind of resolution resolving in faith and trusting confidence in the Lord and his promises. And that, that resolution tends to come in the final few verses of many of the psalms of lament. But notice that in this psalm, at least, here in even the opening two verses, it does not build up to a climax of suffering. It actually begins. It begins right there at a climax of suffering. You see verse 1? We, we could say a great deal about the physical pain of the crucifixion, the, the horrors of Roman torture here, the, the custom of Roman criminal execution. But brothers and sisters, as terrible as the physical sufferings of Jesus undoubtedly were, here actually, here is the true horror of the cross. Here, if you like, is what makes the cross hell for Jesus Christ. 
not the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet, but actually the cry of spiritual dereliction, the cry of perceived abandonment that comes from his lips. Verse 1, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? As dark and terrible as our circumstances and our experiences and and even, even our spiritual depressions, that was something that the Puritans meditated on a lot. We may have different terminology for it these days, but that's something that they regarded as very realistic. As dark and terrible as our spiritual depressions or melancholies may be in our lives, and they are real, and we don't wish for a moment to minimize that, the truth is no one has ever lived in the darkness into which our Savior was plunged in that moment. The full fury of the divine curse fell upon the soul and body of the God-man here as, as for the first time in, in the mental consciousness of Christ, in the mental consciousness of the God-man, the, the Father seemingly withdrew all awareness of his fellowship and his love from Jesus. And, and Jesus was given over by the Father unto condemnation. He was given up, as Paul says, to judgment, given over for us. He was handed over to the wrath of the Father against sin and heinous wickedness. All that it, our sin invited and all that our sin deserved. And he was handed over to that. Now somehow, somehow, in the, in the incomprehensible mystery of the Trinity, while, while never ceasing to love God the Son and never ceasing to be one with God the Son, yet somehow God the Father is now at Calvary pouring out white-hot, unmitigated, unrestrained fury due to our sin, and he's pouring it out upon the Son. Here is Jesus bearing the condemnation that we deserved. Here, brothers and sisters, is what I owe and what you owe on account of our wicked and cosmic treason against God Almighty, our Creator. Here it is. Here it is, what you deserve, what I deserve, and it's paid for in the wounds of the Savior. You see, we look at Psalm 22, and we see, here's what our sin cost. The, the dereliction and the feeling of forsakenness and the perception of abandonment of Jesus Christ, the giving over of Jesus Christ to the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And I wonder if that helps you at all, at all, see your sin in a different light. Because in Psalm 22, we see this wretched figure hanging on the cross, so to speak, and we have a perfect antidote to our far too casual view of sin. We think it all the time, we hear it all the time. It's just a little lie. It's just a white lie. It's just a, it's just a minor fudging of the numbers. It's just, you know, it's... <laughs> It's just a quick glance at that website every once in a while, and then I click it off. I'm just, I'm just thinking about this thing. I'm not acting on it. It is no trivial thing to rebel against the rule and the law of Almighty God. It cost the lifeblood of his son and the terrible experience of God-forsakenness to pay our debt. We're going to sing it later on in the service. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. Here, 
Here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. And the question in verse 1 that Jesus cries to his father, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I God forsaken? It's important for us to recognize that that question that's on the lips of Jesus Christ is not, is not, is not a cry of unbelief. Do you see that? It's not an ungodly cry. Even as he perceives the withdrawal of the countenance of his father, even as he perceives what he perceives to be as the abandonment of the forsakenness of his father, notice that though he cries out in anguish, it is still nevertheless a cry to whom? To my God. My God. This is a cry, you see, of faith amidst misery. As one man put it, God may have forsaken his son to the hell of the cross. God may have given over his son to the hell of the cross. But the son has not given up on the father in the midst of the hell of the cross. He clings to a, close quote, he clings to a God who in these moments, he, he can't see, he can't feel. And as he does so, what a grace it is. What, what a model for us when we find ourselves in a similar situation looking for and bumbling around and, and gaping for and crying to a God who, by all of our mental and physical and sensible faculties, does not seem, does not seem near. And notice how our Savior sustained his faith in these trials. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. How did he sustain his, tra- his faith in, these, in the midst of these miseries? The first thing he does is recite the faithfulness of God to his people of old, to his forefathers. You see verse 3? There's that first defiant conjunction. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and you delivered them. They trusted in you and were not put to shame. You see, Jesus rehearses God's past grace toward Israel in order to sustain his own faith in the present, in the midst of his present woe. He sustains faith and he he looks for more help and for more grace by remembering the unfailing faithfulness of God in the past. There it is, friends. It's simple. It's not flashy. But this is a biblical antidote that you can bring with you when you are in the trenches of spiritual warfare, when you are in the midst of spiritual discouragement and even despondency. Remember the grace of God. Rehearse his faithfulness. If I can put it this way, preach to yourself. He has been faithful to you. He's been faithful to your fathers before you, and he's been faithful to his people throughout the generations. How will he not? He who gave up, he did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not also? How will he not also? This was Christ's method, you see, to sustain his faith in the anguish of Calvary. He remembered and he preached to his own soul the past unfailing, absolutely unfailing faithfulness of God. But then look at verses 6 and 7 and 8. The psalm alternates back again, this time to focus once more on the sufferings of cross. So cry of anguish at the beginning, verses 3 through 5. He preaches to himself this, this cry of confidence. Now we're back to focus on the sufferings again. This time, 
our attention is fixed not on the spiritual anguish, which we thought about in those opening verses, but this time on Calvary's dehumanizing effects. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. A worm and not a man, despised by the people. He's treated by them like an animal, subhuman, worthy of ridicule. Now, I don't know how many of us in this room or in this congregation have ever undergone such trauma, such harrowing kind of experiences that we actually feel like our own human dignity is being ripped away from us. Now, maybe some of you have gone through a kind of experience like that. War, actual war, cancer, malicious, absolutely venomous and malicious treatment by those closest to us. I don't know. But likely there are at least a few of you here who have undergone such harrowing experiences. And one of the most awful parts of those kinds of situations is that it seems as if nobody understands your sorrow. They cannot relate. They cannot comprehend, much less sympathize with the depths of the kind of anguish that you are experiencing. Yet here in Psalm 22 is Christ. And he's traveled to the furthest extremity of human loss and pain and the depths of woe, to borrow the language from Psalm 130, so that he can say to you and he can say to all his people, I know. I know, for we do not have a great high priest who is unsympathetic with our weaknesses, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Praise the Lord. Hebrews 4, verse 15. Look at the cross. He was despised. He was alone. He was mocked. The, the Pharisees there standing around the cross, and here's their, their sneering mockery of him. Verse 8, he saved others. Let him save himself. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You may not feel, you may feel that nobody gets it, that nobody understands. It's not true. You can go to him, Christian believer. You can bring your griefs and you can bring your cries to him. Because here is a man, here is a savior, here is a great high priest, moreover, here's a God who is familiar with sorrow and acquainted with grief. Those words jump out at you when we were reading them this morning in the morning worship service from Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. They jumped out at me. Here is a man familiar with sorrow and acquainted with grief. The Savior knows. But then verses 9, 10, and 11, the the waves of suffering roll back. And again, we're alternating back and forth the dehumanizing effects of the cross, that that suffering that Christ is experiencing, and now we're alternating, we're pivoting, if you like, to yet again the solid rock of his trust in God in verses 9, 10, and 11. And this time, Jesus is supported not so much by rehearsing God's past faithfulness to the forefathers, but by rehearsing God's past faithfulness in his own life. Do you see that? Verse 9. But you, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. 
Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Here's Jesus remembering himself as a covenant child. He can trace the ways that from his earliest of memories, Jehovah has been his God. His God. And some of us have a testimony like this, don't we? We'll say, I'm I'm a covenant child. I grew up in the church. I attended worship services faithfully. Mom and dad taught me the scripture. They catechized me. They were dutiful in bringing me to Sunday school and so forth. I don't really remember a day apart from the love of the Lord. I don't remember living in wild rebellion. I grew up believing and trusting him. I grew up fleeing sin and clinging to Christ. It's not a dramatic testimony. It's not the kind of testimony that gets you invited to give a presentation at a mission conference. Now, maybe we think that when we have that kind of testimony, we might be tempted to think that it's an inferior testimony. I I didn't live like the prodigal. I I didn't come to this kind of crisis moment in my life. I didn't have a near-death experience of some... Something that me, that I, in my stupid sin, brought me to this point of near death and only to be rescued by the grace of God. It's boring. And I want to say to you, no. It's a glorious testimony. It's a glorious testimony. It's Jesus' own testimony. From infancy, from the womb, he said, I trusted in you. I never knew a time when I did not trust in you. It's the way that we pray it will be in covenant homes. It's the way we pray it will be for all of our children, is it not? Here is Jesus Christ using it to sustain his faith in the pit of his most intense sufferings. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. I wonder, if you go back and you reread your own life story... And you reread it not with us, not with yourself, but rather with our covenant-keeping God as the central character in that narrative. I wonder if that won't give you abundant fuel for your faith, even in the absolute very worst of times. Reread your own life story, not with you as the central character, but with your covenant-keeping God as the central character. Well, even as he's bolstered by the memory of God's faithfulness, the Savior nevertheless faces the next wave of suffering. Look at verses 12 down through 18 with me. Now this is an incredibly accurate account of the physical and the physiological effects of the crucifixion. Here, very much as an aside, very much by the way, here's yet another reason to trust the Bible as the inspired inerrant word of God. Almost a thousand years before Christ came, almost a millennia before Christ came, what an accurate account David gives of what took place at Calvary. Let's see how all this went down. King David says, and then later Jesus, as he appropriates Psalm 22 of his own experience, it says, verse 12, I am surrounded by many bulls of Bashan. Verse 13, there are dogs snapping at him all around. There probably were, by the way, literal dogs coming to, we won't go into gruesome detail here, but let's just say it was not uncommon for dogs to come by the execution sites near the corpses at Roman crucifixions. Literal dogs as well as metaphorical dogs as these Pharisees and others are mocking and scorning him roundabout. Verse 16, they pierce his hands and his feet nailed to a cross. They divide his garments and cast lots for his clothing. Verse 18, he is, verses 14 and 15, poured out like water. All his bones are out of joint. His heart 
is melted like wax. His strength is dried up. His tongue sticks to his jaws. Remember Jesus cried out, I thirst, John 19, verse 28. It's an extraordinary depiction of the lingering and agonizing death of the cross. But then there's this final note of faith there in verses 19 to 21. And this time, he does not look, Jesus does not look back on past faithfulness, whether to the forefathers or to himself. Notice this time in verses 19, 20, and 21, this time he cries out to God in prayer for future grace. Verse 19 to 21, it's a prayer that God would intervene and rescue him. 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Come and deliver me. Do notice how even our Lord asks to be rescued from suffering? It is possible to humbly submit to the sovereignty of God while to bend the knee in fealty and submission to his providence while at the same time asking to be delivered from the trials that he has ordained. And if you're not sure about that, I would urge you, remember this psalm and remember Gethsemane. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but your will, what you will, your will be done. He's crying for deliverance, Jesus says, even while submitting to the sovereign plan of Almighty God. A faith that sustains us in our trials is also a faith that doesn't hold back from asking to be delivered from our trials. It is a biblical and godly prayer. But look especially at verse 21, because this really is the pivot of which the whole psalm turns. Verse 21, a very literal and wooden translation might read something like this. Verse 21, save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. And then, instead of another request for help, quite abruptly, David instead declares, he almost interrupts his own tense there in the midst of the verse. Notice the past tense, you have rescued me, or, depending on your English translation, you have answered me. It's as though this request for salvation that that should have followed the first half of this verse, as he, oh Lord, please come and deliver me, oh Lord, please come and rescue me, it's been interrupted by the answer itself. Oh Lord, save me from the lion's mouth, would you come and, ah, you have answered me. And notice that from this point on, the whole psalm, the the tone of the psalm is radically different. And that leads us then to our second point. So first we see from verses 1 to 21, the depths of woe. The depths of woe. But then secondly, the heights of glory. The heights of glory. Here, in verse 22 through 31, really the latter half of uh, 21, but verses 22 to 31 here is death giving way to resurrection and more. Here in the second half of verse 21, if you like, the stone is rolled away and our Savior stands forth alive. We've gone now from Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday. What's especially wonderful about Psalm 22 is that it tells us not not just what it was like for Jesus on the cross, but also how our Savior responds to the fact of his own resurrection. It tells us how he responds even before it tells us how we ought to respond. Look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Or verse 25. 
From you comes my praise in the great congregation. Now, when we were singing Psalm 22 earlier, there in that last stanza, you might be thinking, it uses that language of church. I'm not sure if they used the word church in the Old Testament yet, or if the Hebrew word for church was standing there behind the, the language of Psalm 22. Well, it's interesting because the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when it translates Psalm 22, it actually reads this, in the midst of the great church, in the midst of the people of God, I will bring you praise. Jesus is saying, let me add my voice. Let me add my voice to the myriad of voices in the great congregation. There's a wonderful typology and fulfillment that's happening here. The the great congregation, if you're thinking of it from the perspective of King David, the great congregation was likely the throngs of thousands, Hebrew pilgrims coming up to the temple mount during the, the high holy days to come into the temple and offer sacrifices and to worship God. Well, the New Testament tells us that the great congregation, as Jesus knows it, it is far beyond what David could have imagined. It's far beyond what David could have dreamed. The great assembly of people from every tribe and tongue and nation redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And notice how Jesus invites us to join him in responding to the resurrection. Verse 23, he's giving praise to God for this resurrection that he's wrought. But then verse 23 He calls out beyond himself, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is alive. The Father heard his cries and he delivered him. He did not allow his Holy One to see corruption. He did not allow him to remain in the grave. And we are summoned to worship because the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied and Jesus lives. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Jesus has risen. Oh, that we would make that the cry of our lips, Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day, that it would sound forth from our believing hearts all year round. All year round. He has shattered the bands of death for all who believe. So that even in all the tears. And all the grief. And in all of our life situations. There is nevertheless cause to rejoice. There is nevertheless cause to rejoice. And notice what a congregation it is. What, what a, how, how vast a congregation it is. Did you notice the poor and the afflicted are here? You see that in verse 26. The rich and the prosperous are there. Verse 29. And verse 27, it extends even to all the ends of the world who shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, people from all walks of life brought into this great congregation through faith in Jesus Christ in order to what? To praise God because new New Testament, the New Testament tells us in glorious fulfillment because the tomb is empty and Christ lives. And in verses 30 and 31, we learn how it is that this great congregation will be brought together. You see it there? Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. In other words, as one man put it, An organic 
churchly missionary movement of sorts will be launched from the cross and from the empty tomb and it will span the globe and it will span the years and it will span families and it will span congregations one generation to the next as people tell other people about the Lord's wondrous deeds until people from every tribe and tongue and nation are around the throne and we see it in that great last day in Revelation worthy is the lamb they cry worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and power and glory and might. And that is exactly, and what is it exactly? What is it exactly that will draw these nations? What, 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 what will make them turn from their idols? What will make them turn from these dead idols and bend the knee to the risen Christ? Verse 31, he has done it. Or, as Jesus himself understood these words as he hung at Calvary, it is finished. To tell us die. It is finished. The work is done. Our debt has been paid. Our sin and guilt atoned. There's nothing else to do but to bow in repentance and faith and in adoration and praise. Because Jesus died, there is pardon and mercy and cleansing for you and for me. And because Jesus lives, he did not stay dead. But because he lives, not even death can destroy our hope and not even death can silence our praise. The truth is we've got folks in our church going through the trenches right now for a variety of reasons. We've got some in real spiritual and emotional anguish. Others are in seasons of abundant blessing. Meanwhile, a a cult of death and the enshrining of wickedness and demonic power and malice seems to be on the advance throughout our culture in our day. But the truth is you can face it all, Christian, and you can face it with what I love to call a holy defiance. A holy defiance. And I'll stand right there with you. There's forgiveness of sin in him because he lives. And there's comfort and sorrow for you because he lives. And there's hope for days to come because the tomb is empty and because he lives. Oh, my friends, on this Lord's Day and and every Lord's Day, every week of resurrection, joy and rest and gladness, may the Lord give us fresh sight, fresh eyes of faith and trust unto Christ Jesus for the comfort of our hearts and for the joy of our souls. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we do praise you that Jesus lives and that that same body in which the nails were pierced and that same body in which the spear was thrust, that same body now sits on heaven's throne in glory. And because he lives, death is no barrier to us as people. And sin is washed away and all his promises will be fulfilled. And so we ask that you would ignite our hearts anew in praise because he does indeed live. And for Jesus' sake, we pray that you would seal the glorious truths of this psalm to our hearts tonight and forevermore. Amen.